Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. everyone from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is the Speaker of the House. Just kidding, there isn't one at the time we're taping this. Maybe by the time this appears, there will be one, and it may or may not be Kevin McCarthy. This is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Naima Raza. I have no response to that whole thing. <laughs> what a mess. Jesus. Louise. It's kind of sad because there's, you know, in the time that we're taping this, um, how many rounds has it been now? Nine, I think. Nine? Something like that. Whatever. It's a lot. It's a lot. But... Congress can't get work done. A lot of work hinges on the speaker. And the crazy thing is, it doesn't even require you to be a member of the Congress. To be, yeah. Yep, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, anybody's. I mean, that was last night, Stephanie Rule interviewed um, Lauren Boebert, which just to watch Stephanie's face was, I took multiple pictures of her face and various expressions. But she was saying, you know, Stephanie said, why don't you um, nominate uh, Kim Kardashian? And she was like, well, we could. Like, it was so weird. (laughs) It was so fucked up. Um, But, you know, whatever, the political scene is so is it's stranger than fiction that's all i have to say well elon says that kevin mccarthy should be the speaker oh, well then it's settled if yeah. elon wants it yes. i mean that's probably the kiss of fucking death for him but whatever okay sure what's nice is to watch trump back away from him slowly Ugh, toward so the exit slowly. he used to be my kevin now he's like uh, oh that guy that guy <laughs> no, i didn't know i don't know him i, I don't know him Never heard him. Speaking of fiction, Mm -hmm. uh, our guest today specializes in it, creating Mm -hmm. it on screens. Mm -hmm. Gina Davis is a star of so many films, Thelma and Louise, Beetlejuice, and my personal favorite, League of Their Own, the original one with with Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna. Right, exactly. And and also The Accidental Tourist, for which she won the Oscar. I, you know, she's a really interesting actress. And you can't conceive of how big a star Gina Davis was back in during these, this time. She did a lot of stuff all at once. Uh, but League of Their Own, obviously, was the one people know her most for. Are you watching the new League of Their Own, by the way? I did. I watched the entire thing in one sitting because it is so gay, I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it was such a—it was an entire—it was a lesbian— drama. It was, that's all it was. Everybody was gay in it. It was Rosie O'Donnell, by the way, was in it being gay. Oh, really? Uh, and looking very natty in a suit, dressed like a dude. The original one was not gay. Not Well, no, that's the problem, because I think the character that uh, Gina Davis played was in real life gay. Oh, um, and they, they covered up, I mean, come on, who's playing baseball? It's usually <laughs> quite a few ladies who like ladies. So, What's next on your gay watch list? 
Oh, I don't know. Uh, this I was so gay, I almost was like, get me to the straights again. So. Oh, excellent. And here you are <laughs> so with gay. a straight girl taping in her closet. Yeah. Okay. Gina Davis has a new memoir out. Um, it's called Dying of Politeness, something you would know nothing about. Nothing about <laughs> dying of politeness. Um, and it, she talks broadly about her career. And she also shares these moments... Um, I think in a really uh, vulnerable way, shares these moments, inflection points in her career when she didn't speak up when something bad happened, when she was too polite. Yeah, she shares stories of co-stars who behave badly. In some cases, she says really, really badly. We're going to ask her about Bill Murray. She has alleged he harassed and intimidated her on the set of the film Quick Change. Murray has not responded to Davis's allegations, but we should note that many people have come forward with their own stories of his misconduct, including mm-hmm, Chevy Chase, Seth Green, Angelica Houston, to name a few. And it's it's pretty, it sounds like just a, an asshole. I mean, yeah, so there are so many new stories in this memoir. Mm-hmm. I, makes you think about kind of holding them in for decades. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of actors, women actors are sort of suffer in silence. Mm-hmm. You know, it happened during the sort of period when Ellen Powell in Silicon Valley was telling her story in court uh, about mm-hmm. what happened to her at Kleiner Perkins. And I couldn't go with anywhere without someone telling me a story like that. Yeah. It was amazing, including some very powerful women. And I was like, what? And people just keep it in. People just tuck it away and say, you know, forget it. But I think that the times are changing. And and just today I was reading about this Romeo and Juliet case mm-hmm. against Paramount. Mm-hmm. You know this case? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like Leonard Whiting and Olivia Hussey, who mm-hmm. starred in a 1968 film, um, Romeo and Juliet, by Franco Zeffirelli. Mm-hmm. Um, they were six I seven, remember seeing it. Have you seen it? Oh, sure. Oh, I haven't seen that Lots film. of people have seen it. They showed it in school for us, yeah. I think, yeah. They said they were 17 and 16 at the time. They alleged that the rules were changed on them last minute, and they had to film the scene nude that they didn't expect to film nude. So, yeah, they're suing Paramount for $500 million coming up after so many years because California had temporarily opened up a look-back window for victims of child sexual abuse, basically lifting the statute of limitations. New York had a similar window. Zeffirelli is dead, um, so they're suing the studio, uh, said they mm-hmm. should have known that he was doing this. Apparently, he said the movie wouldn't work if they were promised they could wear stockings and the stuff they do. Now they have all these incredi- these people, these essentially uh, safety people on set when they're doing sex scenes. Yeah, intimacy coordinators. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, they didn't do that then, and so the director could pressure actors. And they they're so powerless, actors are really powerless in those relationships. And so... It's a really interesting issue. Um, I had a really interesting discussion with my sons about um, Brooke Shields, actually, this Christmas. Oh. Uh, I was trying to explain the um, the movies. One was Blue Lagoon, um, where she... Then she did Pretty Baby. Pretty Baby. And then the Nothing Comes Between Me and My Calvins. Mm-hmm. And I... I, I was like, everyone knew there was something wrong with it at the time, you know, but yeah. it wasn't it wasn't like a taxi driver where it's clear mm-hmm. Jodie Foster's a victim, right? Well, it was like uncomfortable, like pretty baby particularly. Yeah, she plays a child prostitute. Yes. She was 12 years old then, yeah, I think. Yes, yeah, and that you know, goes to the parents. It goes to a lot of things, I have to say. I saw Brooke recently, Brooke Shields, oh. and uh, she has this documentary coming out at Sundance, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, it's called Pretty Baby. Brooke oh. Shield story or something like uh-huh. that. I mean, it's a riff on the name of Pretty Baby. Yeah. She was so early in this hypersexualization of young women. And um Yeah, a hundred percent. And what's happening with this and the Paramount case, I mean, it's all like 
what we were okay with then or what what was able to happen then. We're now, yeah. now reevaluating it yeah. and saying, what are our new norms as a society? What's changed and what's not? Yeah. So this is why it's interesting to talk to Gina Davis. Not You don't need a reason to talk to Gina Davis, but yeah. she's so intelligent and she tells these stories with such empathy and kindness that it's really, uh, it's great to hear her. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Gina Davis. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what could otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Let's start with your work. I know everyone talks about Thelma and Louise, A League of Their Own, Beetlejuice, but I love Cutthroat Island. I really seriously do. Yeah. You were a pirate in that movie. You played a pirate lady. I was a pirate captain, yes. Yes, a pirate captain, and it was quite good. I really enjoyed it. So just so you know, I know everyone else talks about the others, and we'll talk about the others, but I want to put in a fan thing for Cutthroat Island. Anyway, your new book is called Dying of Politeness, um, and it's a story of what you call your journey to badassery. So I want to I want to start by talking about that journey, because a lot of the, the beginning of the book, especially, is about how you're unusually polite and, in fact, to the point of negativity towards you. Right. Well, I was sort of raised to be uh, a person who has no needs, who has, right. you know, that I don't need anything from you. I don't cause anybody any problem or trouble or extra effort. And uh, I go along with everything. I never say no. And, you know, that proved to be incredibly difficult as I grew up. I think the point 
partially was that everybody has to like you. And so whatever that takes, whatever sacrifices you have to make to make sure that everybody likes you. Yeah. So what dying of politeness is a really kind of interesting juxtaposition. Can you talk about why you, does it kill you or that it just that you sacrifice yourself for others? Well, I called it dying of politeness in a, a sort of humorous way because I almost did die of, uh, literally die from politeness when I was, I talk about it in the book, but when I was about eight years old, I was in the car with my my parents and my... Bad driving uncle, is that right? Or bad driving grandparent? My uh, great uncle was driving and his wife was in the front. And uh, it was at night, we were driving home to their house and uh, he kept veering into the oncoming lane, like slowly drifting into the oncoming lane and then back. And uh, nobody said anything. And thankfully, the road was very empty. But uh, eventually, a car started coming. And there was nowhere, it was a very skinny road, nowhere for anybody to pull it over. And uh, nobody said anything. And we were going to have a head-on collision. And at the last second, my great aunt said, a little to the right, Jack. And he swerved just in time to uh, avoid hitting the car. So, um, so I realized later that my parents would have died rather than say anything that old Uncle Jack might take offense to. And me, and, yeah. and let me die, too. Right. So I would have uh, screamed at Uncle Jack in a, two seconds. Um, yeah, but, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about your career, because I think it's a thematic thing through your career, is is which I think is not uncommon to actors, women actors. First food roles, you broke in the scene 40 years ago in Tootsie, I think. That was the first one that you saw you in. And you played kind of an ingenue, wore a lot of underwear and things like that. So take us back to that time of landing your first role, because it was such a, you know, I, I love that movie, by the way, it's a tremendous movie, but um, paint a picture of what it was like back then. That was my first audition. I had studied acting in college, and I knew that I wanted to be in movies, but I didn't know how to get into a movie, so I became a uh, uh, a model, because I thought maybe that would lead me into acting, and, uh, and it led me to get an audition uh, for this movie, and they said... Um, my agent said, they want you to wear a bathing suit under your clothes, because if you read well, they want to see you in a bathing suit. The role is going to call for being in, in your underwear sometimes. So I did. And then I went and read, and it was just with the casting assistant and a video camera. And she didn't ask to see me in my bathing suit. So I figured, I put it completely out of my mind. I mean, what, what were the odds I was going to get cast in a movie with Dustin Hoffman, you know? But I ended up getting the part. And, uh, uh, it, it was, uh, it was amazing. It was like the best introduction to business that I could possibly ever have had because Sidney Pollack, you know, was an unmatched. Was the director? Director, yeah. And, uh, and Dustin, decided he wanted to mentor me for the career he was sure that I would have. And also, I made a rookie mistake by coming to the set every day. I didn't know that you were supposed to only come on the days when you were working. I thought everybody must come on the every day and nobody told me not to. So uh, I learned so much from being on the set every day. Did you think about the part you were playing? Because it was a very typical part, you know, this sort of dumb, ditzy woman who shows off her Boobs all the time, essentially. No, I no. I mean, I had no problem with that role. It's, just, it's a small part, but she can't tell that much. But she's she's kind of feisty. And a fan asks her um, if uh, what's going to happen next for my character, and I said, I don't know. I don't write this shit, you know. <laughs> and uh, no, I had no problem with it. 
So when you were in that role, um, it wasn't the lead role, but soon after you did a series of movies, but Beetlejuice was really where you were noticed, I think. Oh, well, oh, you know what? Well, actually, The Fly was the first thing that I really got more noticed for. Oh, right. Yes, The Fly. Which was an incredibly dramatic role. You know, we it was a horror movie, but we took the characters uh, and their plate very seriously. And uh, and it was just remarkable to be able to have a, a big, fat lead role like that and, and have such respect for the material um, and work with Cronenberg, who's, you know, a, a real auteur, was, uh, was incredible. And then Beetlejuice, yeah, was, uh, was super fun. I read that script and then I had a meeting with Tim Burton and uh, I said, I get this movie. Listen, I just get this movie. And he said later that he hired me because he felt like he didn't get the movie and it would be handy to have someone on the set who did. <laughs> so it was really interesting about it. I was, as I was sort of looking over your career, Beetlejuice was in 1988. And then you were in The Accidental Tourist, which you won an Oscar for. Right. And I think you followed it up pretty quickly uh, after winning this Academy Award for that role with uh, Thelma and Louise, which I think you're probably still most known for, although maybe A League of Their Own is maybe may the one that people remember too. Even though you were playing these strong women, you talked a lot about being sort of acquiescent. Um, but you said everything changed for you after me. I'd like for you to sort of, what do you think it represented? And then what does it represent to you as an actor? Right. Well, I had probably the good fortune to play characters who were tougher than I was in real life. Um, and uh, and it was fun. It was really wonderful to try on those kinds of characters and be bold in ways that I wouldn't in my real life. Uh, and it was really meeting um, and working with Susan Sarandon that had the biggest impact uh, on me. And that was because she was somebody like you, I think, who <laughs> says what she thinks and uh knows what she thinks and and is very comfortable in her body and moving through the world. And I had, I really, I realized later I'd never spent extended time with any woman who was like that, um, who just, you know, and not, not confrontationally or anything, but just simply said what she thought. And, uh, and it was like a three month long, uh, training camp in how to be like that, because I took it upon myself to want to become uh, like her. And um, it was so valuable to spend that time with her and uh, and learn who I wanted to be like, what I wanted to be like. And your character was like that. That's the evolving nature of that relationship. How exactly. do you look at that relationship now and then? What were you thinking then that that relationship should be? Yeah, so it was, it was fast. It was so well-written that that script, you know, she won every award there was for uh, for that Callie, script. Callie, Corey, yeah. And most of it was because about this friendship that was about women who loved each other and cared about each other and occasionally drove each other nuts. But the dynamic was kind of fortuitously for me that, that Thelma idolizes Louise and looks up to her and also is able to be a flake and not uh, responsible for herself because she knows Louise will pick up the slack and take care of her. And uh, events of the of the film force that to to change to to the point where we actually for a moment switch roles where I take over and take care of her. And uh, it's a beautiful dance between these characters. Mm -hmm. And do you think it holds up today? I mean, it was one of the first. Um, movies where women carry the whole movie in terms of a big hit, where the other characters, whether it's Brad Pitt, who plays a small role, actually. Uh, one of the things I didn't realize, which was funny, was the people who tried out for that role are all 
big stars now, George Clooney, and you didn't even remember him trying out with him, correct? No, no. The fact is that he wasn't a famous person yet. He yes, wasn't, you yes. Know. No, none of them were. No, it was Mark Ruffalo, and who was the other one? Grant Show. Grant Show, right, from Melrose Place. Right. How does it hold up today from your point of view? Oh, it completely holds up in my view. Um, Susan and I have seen it together probably about every five years when it's uh, the mm-hmm. you know 20th anniversary, 25th, 30th. We, so we just saw it for the 30th last summer. And uh, mm-hmm. to us, it really held up into the audience. It really did. And I mean, the fact that it's so um, important in people's minds 30 years later just says something about the story that just really, really speaks to people. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because, and it, it also has to do with the fact that they that they kill themselves at the end, that they drive off, off the cliff. Allegedly, um, but go ahead. Some people don't think that. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's a metaphor. Uh, but the movie is about women who take control of their own lives and they they retain it no matter what. They will be in charge of their lives no matter what, it, in, in other words, to the end, rather than give it up and surrender their power back to somebody else, uh, to society. And so I think that's what really spoke to people, because I, at first I was like, wow, how is it that people come out of a movie where the lead characters off themselves going, mm-hmm. yay, you know, like, yeah. we're, so, yeah. we're yeah. so empowered, but, but that's why, that's why. Go! You sure? Yeah. Um, what's your relationship with Susan? Have those lessons she taught you stuck with you, do you think? Well, shooting the movie, I thought, you know, I have really come a long way. I've, I've you know, I've really... Um, Badass. Badass, exactly. And and then immediately found out that I wasn't when I started shooting League of Their Own. I fell into really uh, ingrained old habits and and all that. But um, but now I was aware of doing it. Every you know, anytime I gave up my power, I was aware of doing it and uh, worked on that. So let's talk about that. This was Dottie Hinson, who's a very strong woman, star baseball player, older sister of another baseball player. The famous line, of course, there's no crying in baseball, Tom Hanks. It was directed by a woman, Penny Marshall. Um, talk about why you think it's iconic and what happened to you from coming off of a huge hit, uh, Thelma and Louise, to another hit. Well, it was really remarkable because it's powerful enough to be a part of a movie that becomes a cultural landmark. You know, it was, was like incredible. Um, and then the very next movie to do the same thing uh, with people coming up to me and saying, I play sports because of that movie or whatever. And uh, also the press predicted about both of those movies that now everything was going to change. We're going to see so many movies starring women now. And uh, mm-hmm. that's a given. And I'm just thinking, all right, I can't wait to see all that happen. And and, uh, and it didn't. That was really a, a shocking wake up. Yeah, because it was. it's the same thing with Black Panther or anything else. Now it's going to be more and more of these. Um, so for in this movie, what's the most memorable scene for you in the movie? Uh. I kind of like the whole segment where we first appear. Um, we show up to uh, to the tryouts. 
Okay, girls, this is it. Harvey Field. Try out. My character's so tough and cool, you know, and not thrown by anything. Get out there, show them what you got. Don't embarrass me. It's been a thin slice of heaven. Goodbye. I pretended to myself that I was Gary Cooper to have that feeling, you know, that feeling of, like, quiet confidence. This was a movie that showed women playing sports and being athletes. Why hasn't there been another one like that? There's a lot of really interesting characters, whether it's basketball players, Sue Bird or Megan Rapinoe and all kinds of things. Why do you imagine there hasn't been one since? Oh, you know, that's the craziest thing, because I talked to Kelly Corey a few years after the movie came out, and she said a friend of hers who was a writer had gone into a studio to pitch an idea for a movie, and it happened to have two female lead characters, but nothing else about it was anything like Thelma and Louise. And they turned it down saying, there's already been Thelma and Louise. Oh, wow. Like, not only are we not going to... Uh, we're not going to do any movies about women because there's been a movie about women. You know? Yeah, there can be only one. It's my Highlander quote. There can be only one. Yes, exactly. But one big part of representation in the media is the barriers women have overcome about not just recognition, um, but also experiences. You talked about being acquiescent on the set. Um, and the, your story about Bill Murray was fascinating. Mm. Um there was harassment issues from Jack Nicholson, but the incidents were more with Bill Murray. You call them awful and devastating. Talk a little bit about this, because it's a lot about diminishing you or making you behave. You kept talking about this idea. Um, explain what he made you do. Right. So I went to meet with Bill Murray and the um, his co-director and a producer mm -hmm. um, in a hotel suite. And... Mm -hmm. uh, I came in and, and went to sit down with, with everybody sitting there, but but uh, Bill Murray popped up and said, hey, have you ever tried the thumper? And I'm like, what? This year, this was what year? What year was this? This is... Uh, I want to say 89? Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe? Something like that. And uh, no, what, what's that? You, well, come try it. Come try it. No, no, no. I'm just laughing and trying to sit down. No, 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 no. Come, come. It's, it's this, and he point, there's a giant massage device on the bed with big handles on it. And he says, lay down here. I want to try it on you. And I'm like, no, 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 thank you. And he keeps at it. And he keeps at it. And I keep saying no to the point where I would have had to scream at him. Stop fucking asking me. I am not doing it. Do you understand? Uh, which I was far too timid to do. So I perched on the corner of the bed and let him do it. And he did it for like one second, like, and then didn't ask how I liked it or anything. It was just to, and I, so I realized it was just to see if he could force me to do something inappropriate. And the other men in the room did nothing, correct? They did nothing, no. And I looked to them hoping they would say, come on, Bill, give it up or something, but, but they didn't. And I found out that it was because he I had just won the Oscar, and mm -hmm. he had uh, he had said he was told told the others that he was very concerned about hiring me in case I thought I was all that, you know, in case I had a, a, a swelled head uh, from that, and so that was his first uh, test, and uh, evidently I passed. And then uh, the first day of shooting, we were shooting a huge scene out on an intersection in Manhattan uh, with hundreds of extras and giant crew and all that stuff. And uh, 
they asked, they said, it's, we're ready for you to come to set. And I said, well, costumes asked me to wait here one second. Can I do that or should I come with you? And he said, no, no, no. The AD said, no, go ahead, wait here. And then uh, seconds later, Bill Murray, in a full clown costume, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. slams into the trailer with, with a, a, you know, rage coming out of his eyeballs and starts screaming at me and swearing at me, get the fuck out there, what the fuck are you doing? Move, move. And he got behind me and screamed in my ear, move, move faster, move it. And we're getting to this intersection where there's hundreds of people watching this, and he keeps it up and keeps it up until we, he says, stand there, and points to a mark on the pavement and starts shooting. And uh, and I was literally like shaking, and uh, he elbowed me after a few takes and said, What's up with you? Come on, come on. It's all good. And uh, he got you in line. He got yeah. you in line. That's what he was trying to do. And the point was, it it wasn't necessary. You know, it wasn't like an urgent matter for me to go there. I learned that it wasn't. But uh, but he got the opportunity to really put me in my place and really uh, shame me and and. Uh, so, just so people know, Bill Murray's been accused of a lot of inappropriate behavior. Solange yeah. Knowles allegedly grabbed her hair, at least Lucy Liu. There's lots and lots of, and recently he's been pulled off of something. When you think it, about it, that, it, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, but it, it's still, uh, just talking about it, actually, still, it's, it's, it's very emotional for me because, uh, I felt so shamed, you know, mm-hmm. for somebody who wants to do things right, you know, and I felt so ashamed that I, I didn't, my, um, <clears throat> sorry. That's okay. My agent and my manager um, came that day to take me to lunch, you know, fun, yay, mm-hmm. you're starting the movie, take me to lunch, and I didn't tell them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never told anybody until I wrote mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, And it's just a shame that I took on um, blame for mm-hmm. that happening. You yeah. Know? You know, one of the things, and I'm so sorry, don't give your, don't be so hard on yourself. That's, it's very hard to, unless you're particularly aggressive, to be aggressive back at that kind of thing. It's like getting mugged. It's not your fault yeah. that you got mugged, yeah. right? That's essentially, and I think one of the issues, if it's not explicit sexual harassment, people think, oh, it's just yelling. It's the same thing. It's the same abuse. Yeah. It's the same control. You know, yeah. sexual harassment is not about sex. It's about control. It's about putting people in their place and it's about power. Yeah. We'll be back in a minute. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. 
If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for this show comes from Ramp. Are you overwhelmed with managing your business expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? Is your finance software just not cutting it? Or maybe you're just looking to cut all that wasteful spending. Ramp could be a total game changer for you and your business. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Plus, Ramp is easy to use. You can get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. Not only that, but Ramp can save you money. They estimated that businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash Kara, ramp.com slash Kara, R-A-M-P dot com slash Kara. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. What about the harassment? Do you think that has changed? I mean, look, you, when you look at the fall of the Time's Up organization, because it has unraveled, um, Time's Up had a lot of momentum and everyone was wearing white and this and that. Uh, but then it falls apart, lots of reasons, uh, including a relationship with uh, Governor Cuomo that was not, um, was, shouldn't have happened. Um, uh, what, 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 is, what do women in Hollywood do to make this continue? Or do you think the lesson of Me Too has been learned? Well, Me Too lives on. I mean, the ethos of, of Me Too uh, definitely still lives on. And uh, I think women are much more likely to feel entitled to talk about injustices that, that happened to them. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I don't know if you ever saw it. I executive produced a documentary called um, This Changes Everything. And uh, it's about exactly this stuff about the women's, about women's treatment in, in Hollywood. And uh, Chloe Grace Moretz talking about at 15, having the, the production put, uh, what do you call it, breast pads in her, trailer to, to wear when she's 15 years old. And, and so women, uh, you know, came out in droves to, to talk about their experiences with that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. So one of the things you did, which other people didn't do, you founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, which researches gender representation in media. It's something I do know about with the stuff you were doing, which is really, when I heard about it, I was like, that's fascinating. It advocates for equal representation of women in Hollywood on screen. Um, why did you do it this way? And what was your thinking of creating this? It was my two-year-old daughter. Um, I sat down for the first time with her to show her a preschool show. And uh, within five minutes or so, I'm thinking, how many female characters are in this? And I Google it and look it up. And it was wildly imbalanced, like profoundly wildly imbalanced. And, um, and then I saw it in other movies for kids and videos and TV shows. And, and I thought, so we're training kids from minute one to have gender bias uh, because we're showing worlds that are dominated by male characters and they have more to do and there's more of them. The Smurfs is a good example. It's only one oh, woman Smurf. 
There's 99 males and one woman. Yes, and they all have different characteristics, and the woman yes. has one. One of the things I noticed when I was watching with my sons was that what they what they would watch initially when they were younger, and then later, very soon after, when they were five or six, um, my son used to like the Disney princess stuff, right? And then he didn't. And this is two lesbians raising kids in San Francisco. You think there might be some level of interest in some, not gay, but just like more representation kind of stuff. And it was really quite shocking how quickly it happens because all the girls would watch the boys' movies. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, there was this theory in Hollywood that uh, men and boys won't watch women and girls, but women and girls will watch anything. So Mm -hmm. we don't have to worry about the female characters because they'll watch whatever it is. Um, What I realized was I started asking people in my daily life in in Hollywood, whenever I had meetings with people, I'd say, have you ever noticed how few female characters there are in entertainments made for kids? And every single person said, oh, no, no, that's not true anymore. That's been fixed. And they were very serious about it. They were like, here, we care about girls so much. We do everything we can to really... um, And uh, like one person said, well, we made Shrek, where... There's one female character? <laughs> so, like, they thought if there's one important female character, you, you've covered women. So anyway, so then I th- realized this is utterly unconscious from the on-screen stuff. It's unconscious. They don't realize they're doing it. So if I got the data, I, because I'm in the industry, I could go directly to the creators and share it with them privately and say, look, I know you don't know this, but this is how few female characters there are. And they were horrified. They were stunned. They all immediately said, oh my God, what are we doing? Why would we do that? We want to be good for kids. What are we doing? And so the numbers started changing pretty fast. Have they changed now? Have we reached parity? There's certainly a lot of girl-focused shows on TV. Well, we've definitely seen tremendous improvement. In 2019, we reached parity in the lead characters of family-rated films. And in kids' TV, uh, children's shows, uh, we reached parity in the lead characters in the next year, in 2020. It's definitely gotten much, much better. Let me talk about you yourself. Your next role is in a movie called Pussy Island, kind of an interesting (laughs) title. Um, (laughs) I think it's it's meant as a joke, but explain what's the story behind the title and what you're doing in it. So uh, Zoe Kravitz's first directing uh, job, and she she co-wrote it, and uh, Channing Tatum is the male lead character, and uh, and he's a very wealthy, successful businessman uh, who takes a bunch of friends and some girls to his resort island. It's actually sort of a thriller. When I first heard the title and hadn't read it, I was like well, this is going to be some romp of, you know, sexy gals on an island or something, but uh, but it's not. But uh, but I, I get to play a really funny character um, who is, I'm his assistant, and, uh, and I'm very spacey and clumsy. I'm always dropping things, and uh, I fall in the pool, and, um, and uh, very strange behavior, and it's only later in the mystery part of it that we find out why. So it's a juicy role for you, so to speak. Yeah, 
It is. So one of the things you talked about in the book, um, a bit in the book, is the dilemma of the aging actor about the, you know, the uphill climb. And in the book, you talk about wanting to take out a full page magazine ad that said, not for nothing, but I haven't retired, you know. Uh, You've been in Hollywood a long time. Right. Um, Now, more recently, your roles have been in TV. Uh, You've been on shows like Grey's Anatomy and Glow. How do you look at how your career has developed? You have these giant movie roles. How do you look at your career right now? It's always tough to find really incredible roles. I had uh, an amazing run of like really top roles and uh, assumed that I was going to, that would continue to be the case. But it's just a fact that actresses over 50, data from my institute shows that they're only 5% of movie populations, uh, unfortunately. Um, You said your career hit a cliff when you were in your 40s. Um, After all these, one major hit after the next. Talk about this cliff. Um, I have not hit a cliff. I keep getting more powerful as I get older, but that's different. Talk about this, uh, this uphill climb, I guess, for lack of a better term. Right. Well, uh, well, it's funny because I always say I'm waiting for the work that I'm doing at the Institute to benefit me. Right, right, right. That's why you're doing it, right? <laughs> it's all it's all a ruse to just improve. <laughs> I pretended to be, uh, you know, magnanimous in order to mm-hmm. help myself. Uh, but uh, I think it's um, that we need a sea change in the way people think about characters and casting. What resists that? Because, you know, Harrison Ford is 80. He's in, he's going to be in 1923. He's going to, there's a new Indiana Jones coming out. Uh, Brad Pitt is sexy, right? I think he's pretty old. Um, George Clooney, et cetera. Um, Is there not enough depictions or is it society itself? So things that happen on screen will happen in real life. In the entertainment industry, we can't wait for something to happen in real life and then we'll reflect that. We need to make it happen on screen in fiction and then it will happen in real life. Um, images on screen are incredibly powerful toward encouraging people to want to be like the characters or, uh, you know, uh, respect uh, characters that they see. And so we could absolutely change the world if we showed it on screen. So I'm very, I'm very optimistic about it, that it it really does have the uh, potential to really, really change things. Yeah. So I'd like to finish up by asking you two questions. One is, what role would you like to play now? What what is your dream role? If you had, again, if you had any choice, what would you want to do? So I, I I want to be in a Marvel movie, actually. What character? Uh, A a villain, uh, somebody was superpowers uh would be mm-hmm. would be really fun you know i love action movies what would be your superpower i don't know i don't know mine would be invisibility oh because i love sneaking around and finding out things so yeah oh that's true that would be really fun i don't know i'd have to think about what my you just sh- want strength i want to play power- i like to play powerful characters powerful characters um and i'm just curious to my last question what do you like right now when you're looking across the entertainment spectrum you look at these all based on gender issues and things like that but what do you think is good right now something recently you've watched i i'll give one wakanda forever i thought was amazing i did not think uh she would hold the movie the young woman um mm. i think it's Letitia right um right. and she did and she not did. just because um uh Angela Bassett was there because she can hold any movie she feels like. Sure, but, of course. Uh, but I thought they held the movie in a way that I I wish I wasn't surprised by, but I was. Yeah. I was thrilled, actually. Oh, I, I agree with you about that one. I was just blown away. And uh, 
and the evolution of female characters in the in the Marvel universe has been just extraordinary. Uh, been fabulous. They're very very conscious of that and um, just went with. They didn't find a new male Black Panther, you know, and and it was incredible the way they did that. I loved it. Anyway, this is a great book. I don't think you're as polite as you think you are, which is a good thing. <laughs> and I don't think you're dying of it for sure. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you. Well, that was something. I was very, uh, that she cried was amazing over the Bill Murray situation. Um, I just want to know, I didn't make her cry, Bill Murray did. I felt so sad for her because... Years later. Yeah, so much later. And obviously, and what, you know, there was a Thumper story. Mm -hmm. And then there was the other story of being on set and him yelling behind her, go, go, get out, get out, and yelling Mm -hmm. in her ear. And I feel like that's not about, I mean, there's a gender dynamic there, but that's a power dynamic. That's a, when someone is barking in your ear for you Mm -hmm. to do something and bullying you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all had that experience in life. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. It is. It is. And it's definitely, it's a question of what you do in the moment. I think that she's still remembering that young woman who put up with that and she's embarrassed for herself, though she should not be. Yeah. Um, And she still feels shame. And that was what that crying was about. Yeah. Dying of politeness. Um, You and I are not so polite. No. 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 I'm a little more polite than you. Well, that's interesting because, listen, when I said I thought some of the problems, you know, we, we talked about sort of management and different things like that. And I said, no, they're directly, you're being a, a, a young woman, a woman of color. And you were like, no, 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 no. And I was like, absolutely, which was interesting, which is, I, I found that fascinating. Yeah. Well, you just were like, because I'm irritating. I'm like, no, you're more irritating because it's coming <laughs> out of your mouth versus a dude. But it, it's true. I think you were very quick to say that wasn't the reason. And I do not believe that for a second. I don't think other people would have been treated the way you were. I wouldn't, I do not think so. And I know it, I see it all the time. People don't don't do it with me. They wouldn't dare Mm. at this point in my career, but I certainly think, I I have experienced it when I was younger, uh, I think. Yeah, the McLaughlin group, you've written about this or talked about it, yeah. Yeah, but I think you can't totally discount it. And that doesn't, I think you don't want to become a victim. I think that's, I'm not a victim, I can handle it, but I think you do get... You, you get treated less well. I just think that's the case. Yeah. But I think it's hard to know that, especially early on when you when you start. Like, I remember being really young in my career, um, in my first job, and finding it, like, I was 21 years old. There was a certain one partner at the firm I used to work at. He would always invite me to meetings with major clients, you know, and there were five people between us in the totem pole. And I asked him once, like, why are you inviting me? And he said, you never get called out for bringing a pretty girl to a meeting. Oh, good God. I think one thing that's hard to grapple with is like, there's advantages and there's disadvantages, right? Like what that partner was saying in his like very disgusting way was, uh, oh yeah, there's an advantage because you look how you look and I can bring you to this thing. And that made me have to choose between being advantaged in the workplace and not taking an opportunity. Mm. And you have to make these choices that are, are really hard. It's a tax. Yeah. It's a tax that women pay. It's a tax that people of color pay that you shouldn't have, that that straight white men just don't pay. Yeah, the tax you pay is having to learn how to navigate those situations. And put up with that. Ugh, gross. I but, know. Yeah, well, it's, it's like you have to choose. You, you have right. an opportunity, but you know that opportunity is a little bit grimy, right? It's not yeah. an opportunity like playing yeah. golf with the dude, right? Yeah, grimy is a good word. Yeah, it's grimy. And... Also, people weren't receptive in that time. I remember, like, I 
told a manager about a client mm. behaving inappropriate with me. And then it became office gossip as opposed to mm-hmm. kind of an actionable event. Yeah. So this was back in, you know, the late aughts, but people yep. just, it, it. I think the culture has really, really shifted and I hope it yeah. continues to shift. Yeah, definitely. But how do you raise somebody to not be polite? How are you raising Clara? She's a spicy in your face person and I want to keep her that way. And she, she's, listen, it's going to take a lot to squash her down, but there's going to be a lot of attempts to do so. And I'm going to be right there with her. I think she's got all the tools. And so we're going to just keep uh, emphasizing her, her, her forthrightness. That's all. We shall not let that happen. She knows who she is. It's really good. I'll tell a very brief story. She was, she likes to go to the store, like, mm-hmm. like you, Naima, not like me. Um, so she said, she wanted to go to the store and she said, can we go to the store? And I said, yeah, absolutely. She loves to look at things and go through the store and sort of marches around very imperiously throughout a store. And so, uh, she told Amanda was driving her to work at to school, excuse me, and Amanda was going to work. And, um, and she said, and she said, I heard you and mommy plan to go to the store with you. And she goes, it's my plan. Like, yeah. she's like, it wasn't mom, mama's plan. It's my plan. And so I love that. I thought that was good for her. It's her plan. I know the day that you're talking about because mm-hmm. I got like two calls from you in a row. And I'm like, what's up? Mm-hmm. And you said, oh, it was Clara calling you. Yeah. By accident. Yeah. But I think she was calling me for help because she was in a store with you, Kara. No, no. She was shopping with her mom and she <laughs> said, I need some fashion advice. No, she's more fashionable than, than even you at this oh. point. I don't know about that, but I'm going to let her inherit all of my shoes. (laughs) Okay, let's move along. Okay. Kara, you want to read us out? Certainly. Today's show was produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Christian Castro-Rossell, Rafaela Seward, and Claire Tai. Special thanks to Haley Milliken. Our engineers are Fernando Arruda and Rick Kwan. And our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you've hit a grand slam. If not, there's no crying in podcasting. So go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network and us. We'll be back on Thursday with more.